The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to a special limited edition insert podcast mini series with experts on the Wheel of Time television show program. I am one of said experts, and I'm claiming that title for these. My name is Greg, and I'm very excited to be uh, joined tonight by Tyler for some discussion, not of a book, but of a television program. Tyler, how's it going? It is going very well. This is the third of four episodes that we are doing about the first season of Amazon's Wheel of Time. If you lost the name of our show in Greg's hilarious but 87 <laughs> word long introduction, this is Through the Glass Columns, and we are thrilled to be discussing anything related to the Wheel of Time. But in particular, what I just told Greg and kind of shocked him before the episode, I think of as the good ones of this batch mm. of the TV show. I think episodes five and six, which we are discussing tonight, are the creme de la creme not to say the last two are bad by any stretch but ooh, we got some good stuff to dig into tonight what were your thoughts as a first time watcher greg oh my goodness i uh i i said to you on text message i can't believe how well we lined up our mm-hmm. book reading and our television show watching and and we are going to try to keep those separate from each other so if you just get nervous because you haven't read the books and you want to preserve that We won't talk a lot about it, but just in a variety of really interesting, unique ways, it's like Tyler pulled off the perfect accidental, you know, long game to get these two aligned together. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Earlier this week, I literally texted you how amazing that like little bit of kismet was and then realized as I sent that text, I should have claimed it as a plan, but it was already (laughs) out in the ether. I couldn't take it back up. But I really love these episodes in part because as you're saying, we had a little bit of like overlap between kind of themes and characters we were reading about and watching. But partially why I love these episodes is because if you're a book reader, they do not resemble the book that this is adapted from more or less at all. Um, Perrin and Egwene's sequence is at least kind of partially adapted from the book, but everything else is more or less made up from whole cloth. And I love that about it. It's really exciting to be in new territory when talking about a series that for me has been over for almost a decade. I can't remember exactly when those books (laughs) came out. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm caught up in the the current marketing is uh, we're in the lead up to season two of this this uh, television show. And um, the marketing has been kind of emphasizing that it is an adaptation of uh, the Great Hunt, which we recently wrapped up on the reading side of our podcast. Um, and so it was kind of shocking that, you know, there were some materials here that kind of belong in that book, but more from 
kind of connections to book three. And so it was kind of, uh, I thought it was curious that the marketing has been leaning that way when it seems like they're doing what a, a kind of a good, uh, this is, a, now we're headed into the analysis uh, op-ed section of the program. I always think a adaptation that tries to just say, this is the book everybody loves, let me do exactly that is terrible um, because it doesn't live up to what book fans want and it confuses people. And, you know, uh, personally, I would put some of the later Harry Potter movies in that camp. It's like they've left behind whatever like just audience, uh, just movie audience there is. And it's like, it doesn't quite work because, because we don't want just that. Whereas I think the creators of this show, um, you know, have done a good job of saying like, okay, this is what it is. We've kind of mapped out this sandbox that this, the book series created. Let's tell stories in a way that that makes sense. And um, again, because I'm just so new to all this, I give all credit to Celine Song, uh, who is the the woman I keep celebrating in these television episodes. And she was the credited writer on episode five tonight, the first yep. of the two we'll be discussing. Um, and we haven't talked a lot about who gets credited as writer and director. So I'm not even sure this is her first, but um, she was a name that was familiar to me. Um, you know, I actually, it, the one other thing I'll say, it reminds me a lot, um, the Wachowski He's adapted uh, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas into a movie that kind of flopped, but was actually really good. It just didn't find its audience. And that book is so like intricately constructed that they couldn't try to do it that way. And instead kind of took the pieces and mixed it up and and put together a, a good movie version of that. Well, and this is my feeling on adaptations right now is I feel like there are a lot of movies and television shows right now that what they are doing is they're saying, this is what the book did well. I want to do it on screen. And I don't think that's the right way to do an adaptation. If a story has already been done well in a particular way, what I want to see is a different take on it or something that wasn't successful being done in a kind of better, more effective version of the way that it was already being produced. So that's what I think the Wheel of Time is doing so effectively, right? They're saying, look, Robert Jordan, you nailed like kind of the character driven adventure show let me give you kind of a new take on it that's much more kind of adult, that's much more, you know, feminist forward in a lot of ways, even though that's something that I think you've seen kind of evolves and grows as the series goes on. But, you know, I think that this show has really done a good job of saying, let me take the bones of this really successful thing and give you something new with it, as opposed to I feel like so many adaptations we get these days are like, hey, look, it's the Little Mermaid, but this time with real people and there's nothing worth seeing (laughs) about that. We've already seen the good version of that movie. Um, I'm going to put a pin in my Little Mermaid rant. Because the only thing they added to that movie made me hate like literally anybody involved in the creation of that movie. Uh, you're, the perfect analogy to me is a cover song, right? Yeah. Uh, it reminds me two, three, maybe now five years ago when um, Weezer was asked to cover um, uh, 
Africa, uh, Toto. Oh, yeah. At, yeah. And um, they came out with a cover song and you could tell it was Weezer, but they just did the song like yep. exactly. And I've always thought that kind of cover song is really stupid. No offense to Weezer, who I'm sure are listeners. It's like, if you're going to cover a song, I want to hear your band's interpretation. I want to hear something different with that. Have you heard they actually did a trade with Toto? Toto covered a Weezer song and it's amazing. Uh, it's the better right. end of that trade. <laughs> uh, that sounds much more up my alley. Um because I, I think that's the way to go. Like, who just needs a straight uh, yeah. recreation of it? Uh, so before we really get rolling, just a tiny bit of housekeeping. Uh, number one, in a previous episode, I think episode two on the television show, we promised a guest this episode. Mm. My friends, you've been growing and changing with us, and we have reached the important podcast milestone of having a guest cancel on us. So we did it. We're a real podcast Yay. now. Uh, yeah, I was going to have you like press a sound button, yeah. uh, soundboard. That's Get ready for ads, month. everybody. It's <laughs> next step. Yep. And a Patreon for $500 a month. We come and read a book to you. Um, so, uh, so apologies for that. You just get the two of us, but we will keep the analysis uh, light and breezy and what you've come to expect. Uh, if you are listening to this on release date uh, or somewhere thereabout, it is August 18th. We are recording this a little in the past, but we are uh, just wanting to note that our uh, discussion of this uh, television program is considered criticism to Tyler and I, and not promotion for any uh, Amazon product whatsoever, including the next season of The Wheel of Time. In light of the ongoing actor and writer strike, um, I'm pretty secure in saying it's not over by the time people are listening to this, uh, unless you're Please listening end in December. It. Writers, <laughs> actors, you're doing the right thing. Studios, don't make me teach this strike for four months. Please. So please, please uh, know that this podcast is a celebration of the good work of writers and actors. And that's the side, as Tyler just alluded to, that we're on, not just the side of overworked uh, economic uh, Hollywood economics professors <laughs> who don't want to teach the strike. Um, so uh, this will uh, be the third. And then there's one more next Friday. Uh, a reminder again, before we fail to deliver on your expectations, that if you're enjoying this television insert series, please recommend it to friends who are not book readers but might be uh curious or interested uh throw it into your social media tag us uh, uh you know uh through the glass columns on instagram and and i'll see it or if you're on one of the like 57 god i was gonna say twitter replacements but now i have to say x replacements i think please don't so if you're if you're on one of those types of things uh, you can generally find uh, me, at least on a placeholder account, at Ion Cannon, and you can tag me and I'll celebrate with you and, and shout out back at you. So, all right, Tyler, I think when we approach these, we don't necessarily do a beat by beat summary in any way. But what do you want to say to cue up our conversation about episode five? So I actually kind of wanted to do what we did in the previous episode, which is maybe split this by um, kind of character arc, right? We've got three big groups that I think we want to cover. And so I think a good place to start with this is to basically say two things. One, let's start by talking about Rand and Matt. They have um, a plot where they arrive in Tarvalon. They meet um, the Ogier Loyal and they kind of deal with Matt's increasing kind of madness. But then also 
tied up in that discussion is the fact that Rand and Matt basically disappear for the entirety of the second of the episodes that we looked mm. at, right? There's a brief scene where uh, Moraine heals Matt in, I believe, the sixth episode, but that's about it. And so um, I'm curious your thought about kind of the way that we have these three plot lines that have kind of been going since the split in episode two. And it really feels like they all get kind of even time in episode five. And then episode six is 95% Moraine land 90s. Yeah. And I think uh, wrapped up in that question is just uh, it took me, you know, when when I sat down to watch this one, it'd been a little while since uh, we had watched four together. And um, I was like, wait, where where did we leave them? Like, you know, yeah. we are uh, multiverse travelers. So I'm like, wait, which which timeline am I in and where are these characters? And we left them on kind of a cliffhanger where yeah. it looked like Matt maybe killed an innocent family um, or was it? Trollux or the Fade or, right. you know, who was it? Um, and it actually took me a little time to remember that Tom was with them. Yeah. And Tom's gone. I mean, they they reference him um, and just say he left. Right. Um, but that felt like a remix of book events in a really interesting way, because, um, well, I, I will say it plainly, it made me not optimistic for Tom's future in the series, at least yeah. for a little while, that. Like, oh, it doesn't really matter. He'll just wander off screen. It was very much a Poochie went back to his home planet. Uh, but I think there's more Tom to come or one would expect it anyway. Yeah, and I think this is actually one of my favorite things about the TV show's adaptation of this plot line is I think you're right. They kind of yada yada a lot of stuff, right? There could mm. be uh, an entire episode of them debating whether or not to go back for Tom after he battled that fade and discussing whether or not Matt was responsible for the deaths or not and working their way through that. And yet what this show basically does is just like put a little like icon at the bottom that's like five weeks later. We did it. And I'll be honest, I really wish Game of Thrones had done that sometimes. <laughs> and I wish Robert Jordan had done it in the first book. Like one of our mm. big complaints about book one is we spent like 12 weeks with Rand and Matt on the road. I'm pretty okay yada yada that. It can just be one episode. That's fine. Well, and I definitely messed up on a recent episode of our book podcast thinking the time gap had happened in the book, but it happened in the episode <laughs> of the show. Uh, so people were caught that moment where I was like, oh, and there was a wait, uh, there was a character like, I totally had had to put the time gap into this plot line instead of what we were discussing in the book. So um, you're right. There's not a lot of compelling material with all due respect to the farmer's daughter. I yeah. think giving us one of those kind of confrontations with dark friends works. Um, and, you know, it's I think the the best parts of Star Wars always leave gaps for people to tell stories later. Like, yeah, maybe they just walked straight across the continent and got here. Yeah. Or maybe there were seven more and we could tell that story elsewhere, but we don't really need it. But you it, it, it did make me wonder. I mean, we've mostly gotten linear storytelling here, but I'm like, oh, you could do a flashback to the moment Tom yeah. left or, you know, it's it's not even necessarily to me that that Tom Tom's plot line from the book didn't happen. Right. right. It could have happened in there. It would involve them having gone to a different city and then to Tarvelon, which, you know, would strain credulity a little bit. But could have happened in five months, obviously. Um, 
and you know, at the end of the day, you just got to keep this moving at, at yeah. eight episodes. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the difference between eight and 10 is trimming that down to a yada, yada, yada to steal your phrase. And, and I think yeah. if it means we instead get, you know, compelling material all episode, I think that's good. So um, advancing the comments that you initially offered me to make. I was excited to see Loyal because that was yeah. then my next fear is like, uh-oh, like we didn't go to the right city to meet Loyal, but there he is. Um, I have been critical of the effects on this show. Um, by my untrained eye, Loyal looks like practical costuming and makeup, not yeah. CG. I thought he looked pretty good. Yeah. How do you feel about him? My only complaint about Loyal is I wish they had put a little bit more effort into like force perspectiving him to make him look mm. like massive because he's supposed to be like a solid foot, foot and a half taller than Rand and Perrin, who are already like linebackers among average people. And so that was my one complaint. I think if Loyal had felt like he was massive in scale and looked the way he did, I think I'd be like A plus. That was fantastic. But because he kind of looks about the same size as Perrin and looks the way he does, I'm like B plus. It's fine. It doesn't feel quite as fantastic as I want it to. But I don't think that's because the practical effects are letting me down. I think it's just because uh, size is one thing that I can be like, okay, that feels wrong as opposed to a look. I'm kind of like, okay, it can look a little different. It doesn't have to be exactly the way I thought of it. Well, I, I actually like that point a lot. I mean, you know, I think like any good people around our age, we watched every appendice on the Lord of the Rings uh, yep. <laughs> DVD, special edition, extended cut, whatever's. Um, and, you know, that is just pure movie magic um, yeah. when you see the way they they manipulate it. And, you know, maybe I think it would have required a, you could you could do it slightly with some camera work, which would be very cheap. Uh, but if you got into the like building two sets and compositing, that would get tougher. So yeah. I can see it being a cost saving measure. Um, it also, you know, all that, all the complimentary things I can give to Lord of the Rings, sure. But there are definitely times in Lord of the Rings, you're like, yeah, those are little people who've replaced yeah. the Hobbits. And that is definitely not Gandalf. And so it, it fails at times. And I think that's the trade off is by we're not going to have those kind of weak moments by just not trying by keeping it all in a scale that fits. Yes. Well, and I, I think guess pun intended. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think Loyal works otherwise, right? To some degree, I think there's a part of me that's like, I want to pick it apart. I want to say this isn't quite what I was looking for. Oh, gear should be more like this and like that. But to some degree, I think the like credit to the actor for just nailing the kind of like vibe of Loyal. And I think he just immediately settles into that like okay he's the the cozy friend who is you know sitting in a on a chair reading and i just want to like that character no matter whether the effects like sell me or not so mm -hmm. i think i'm kind of willing to suspend my disbelief a little bit on that one and just go along with it i think is kind of where i end up on loyal what did you think of the port portrayal of that character on the show because he is i think very beloved by people even who have just read one book I like I said, I was very excited when he showed up. I I would say I'm in the camp that enjoys him and didn't want to see him cut out. Um, you know where we are in the books. I'm gonna tread carefully by just saying he could be cut out. I still have yeah. hopes that he'd have he has a bigger role to play in this story that maybe means you have to have him. You know, actually, I think of the Harry Potter uh 
movies when they wanted to cut out Sirius's house elf and uh, mm. creature. And yeah. J.K. Rowling, problematic as she is, uh, said like, oh, 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 you might not want to do that. Like, you might want to just tease him a little because he kind of has a role to play uh, yep. down the road. Um, and so, you know, that's my hope for Loyal. But especially when we were suddenly in a different in Tarvelon, I was like, well, maybe we are trimming him out it, yeah. you know you have to make those choices so i was certainly glad to see him there the portrayal was good um i think it felt like he and rand became friends very quickly and yeah. i don't know if that is unfair to charge the show with because i don't think the book really develops that in any way um but especially it was like they were already running errands for each yeah. other and doing things very quickly I think to some degree, that's the consequence of the yada, 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 right? I think they become friends just as quickly and just as easily. But in the books, you have 150 pages of how desperate Rand is for companionship. So you buy it. And on the TV show, you are like, wait, where did that come from? Where the answer is it probably came from the last five weeks we didn't see. So I think that makes a lot of sense, right? They kind of created that problem by solving another one. Um, My other thought of like a standout moment or scene in the Rand Matt section is the scene where they are watching um, Loghain, the dragon, be brought by and they kind of see him laughing and then they cut and realize that he wasn't actually laughing. Um, that, I think, is a really effective sequence. And it's it's just different enough from the book that every time I watch it, I'm like, is this in there? Yeah, it kind of is. Like, <laughs> what? What was your take on that? And then also, I guess my follow-up to that is so far we've had two big scenes and they both involve other characters. So maybe that means Matt and Rand have the boring section of these two episodes. <laughs> uh, you know, if you had asked me for a single moment in this plot line, I would have picked this one. Despite yep. my love of Loyal, I just thought it was phenomenal. And kudos to the Loghain actor who... Yeah. I'm sure is not long for much more interesting material in this in this show, but um, I thought this was really compelling. And, you know, I was trying to not be a book reader in this moment and say, you know, if it's really an open question of one of these two boys could be the Dragon Reborn or one of these five characters, yeah. sorry, four, four, five. Yeah, they, they they do put naive in that category. Yeah, the way that they say it, I think it's in episode six, is there are five, but one of them is the wrong age. Mm, okay, so one of those five. Um, and you know we have our own answer at this point, but it was really interesting when, um, you know, in terms of putting the suspicion strongly on Matt. I, yeah. in my opinion, that's how I read that moment. Um, and then trying to piece through, like, well, what is it? You know. What is acting here? Is this a manifestation mm -hmm. of their own fear? Is this actually a recognition of the darkness within Matt? Because Matt is still deeply infected in that yeah. moment. Um, but it just wonderful performance, wonderful camera work, right? Yeah. That, you know, the way it was looking up at Matt and uh, I assume dollying or craning across. So you got the movement of the carriage. You had no doubt that he was like locked eyes with Loghain and that we were now in Loghain kind of staring back. It was really nice. Uh, fun little Easter egg hunt that's worth going back for. Uh, there is one moment in that sequence where you can see a familiar face walking through the crowd. Did you catch it? No. Uh, Padden Fane is visible in the crowd somewhere oh. in that sequence, the peddler from the first two episodes. So if you are considering going back, go back and watch it. The uh, camera work looks like it's focusing on a couple of girls in white dresses, presumably from the White Tower, but he is also in that shot. 
Nice. And I have no idea why it would be him. Curiouser and curiouser. Who would know other than someone who might have read these books like six months ago? <laughs> Zoom wink. Zoom wink. Okay. Uh Yes. And I think I don't have much more to say. I, I mean, yeah. we are working across both episodes or yeah. no. Uh, yes. So the the curing scene was phenomenal. Again, yeah. the the effects looked great. I, I you know, I, I'm not beating myself up when I was making fun of the Trollocs because they were the kind of sloppiest of the CG in the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't think the the effects of the magic, the the power have ever looked bad, but um, the way it kind of interwove and braided was gripping. Um, yeah. The way it appeared on her face was really unsettling. And yeah. then like I was so relieved as it came off her face. And I'm like, that was like 20, probably not even 20 seconds of tension where I was like, oh, God, we're losing Moraine. And, and again, I kind of know where these books are going. And so I should have known like it was just coming there. But um, I just I thought it was really well done. I won't be so vain as to say that's how I pictured it, but it fit with my understanding of this world really nicely. Yeah. And I will say, I kind of agree with you about the effects being like hit and miss to some degree, but a lot of the misses are in the pilot. I think there's some Mm. really solid work in in these two episodes in particular. All of the channeling, I think, looks really beautiful. And I think you called it out a couple of episodes ago. Um, Why can't I think of Rosamund Pike? She is so Mm. she just sells the casting of the magic and manipulating those threads. And I thought she just did an insanely good job in the scene we're discussing in particular. Just nails it. It's so funny to think about how that must feel (laughs) when you're standing there with no effects. And like, you know, I think a lot of people make fun of blue screen acting and things like this. But it's like they are putting so much trust into Mm -hmm. the the effects teams and the director and all the, it's like, yeah, you know, when you see somebody be in a terrible, I don't know, like San Andreas or something like that, you're like, yep. that could have been amazing. Like the rock doesn't know on set until the, they build the building that he's jumping across or whatever. I don't, right. I didn't even see that movie, but like, you know, it's easy to make fun of some of those uh, for having poor effects that they don't sell it, but it's, it's certainly not the actor's fault. And yeah, um, you know, there are ways to improve performance against those things. I'm still not sure the volume's the answer. I think it's it's more this, but, you know, part of it has to be Rosamund Pike just totally going for it and 100%. just, you know, jumping off the building, uh, you know, and I think that that totally uh, worked in that scene. And, and you know, again, it pays to pay a really good actress right yeah. like um you know so many members of this cast it it's funny as it goes on i keep thinking like well that's interesting i might have stunt cast that i might have done somebody recognizable in that yeah. role and and my i mean i guess i was gonna say the only one is rosamund pike i also recognize the guy from love actually uh but yep. <laughs> i don't i don't think he really falls into recognizable actors so we're getting you know a lot of people who um are fresh faces. And I think that's also a good choice in fantasy because we believe they're their characters more than anything else. But um, I think, you know, it pays to have really good performances within this. A hundred percent. And I think they've done a really smart job of like, it's not even stunt casting in a lot of cases. It's just like, picking someone really good from shows where they didn't have a giant role. Like Loghain, mm-hmm. I think, had a role on Narcos, and Suwon was relatively famous for something as well, although I can't recall off the top of my head um, 
what that was. But if we're talking about powerhouse performances, um, we desperately need to make sure we talk about Madeline or Madeline Madden. That's a difficult to pronounce name who pronounce, <laughs> who, who plays Egwene because boy, does she put on a little bit of a powerhouse in that sequence with her yeah. and Eamon Valda in the tent. Um, what was your thoughts on the adaptation of the Perrin and Egwene plot line? Because I think this is the one that maybe keeps the closest to the book, but also kind of truncates quite a bit, which is an interesting choice. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, it was funny because I as the confrontation unfolded at the start of episode five, I was like, oh, that's right. I'd completely forgotten they spent time in the white cloak. So you're right. It was a pretty direct adaptation. I was like, oh, I just forgot this existed at all. I will say in passing there, I just loved that confrontation scene oh, yes. um, as well uh, between the tinkerers and the the white cloaks and um, the actress whose name I'm not going to remember, but exactly what you said a minute ago. She played a really great character on Orphan Black, a show I loved for the six seasons I watched and then forgot to watch the seventh season or whatever the last season was. I just forgot that, that it's like I changed cable companies and forgot I didn't have BBC anymore or something. Um, so uh, it was great to see, you know, again, not a huge part, but a very kind of memorable scene and, yeah. you know, a, a juicy bit of acting. Um, the the way they linked arms, um, yeah. you know, is it was really powerful. And, and you know, I'm sure it spoke more to you in, in your pacifism, but but I loved that bit um, as well as uh, then uh, what it led to, I think, was incredible. And certainly, you know, I I think Egwene got more material, but Perrin did a great job too. the actor yeah. who plays Perrin did a great job, um, you know, being kind of victimized. But then, you know, the way he interpreted his powers. Yeah, I, I mean, he does a great job in the scene where he's, you know, he's obviously being tortured, more or less. But the scene before where he confesses to Egwene that he was the one who killed his wife. And then, mm. A, that scene is amazing. And then, yeah. B, the thing that gets me every time is the gut punch of Eamon Valda walking in the second he finishes that story, clearly <laughs> waiting for the perfect time. It's like, oh, I hate you. Uh -oh. That was the right time <laughs> to walk in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, boy, they want you to hate him and like yeah. job well done. Like, <laughs> you know, he just the the like the grins and um, I've, I've been rewatching The Office and it re reminds me a lot of um, James Spader in later mm, office seasons. Yeah. It, the office is bad by that point and to no fault of James Spader. But yep. but it's like this this kind of. I don't know, it's not really bureaucratic, but it's just like smooth and slick and owns the room. And in this case is pure evil and everything he says is awful. And yet you're just like, but like, I still want to listen to him. I still want to hear him talk. Well, and I think that such the interesting thing about this is that when we get the white cloaks in the books, they're so gray. They're not just mm. like big, dark, bad villain. And so the fact that when we get the white cloaks on the show, it's just like, here we go the worst one right yeah. <laughs> it, it's a really fantastic introduction to that organization but it's also just really interesting to see how the show in some cases is condensing kind of complications into really light and dark conflict which hmm. is, is kind of cool right as we were talking about before i don't want the adaptation to perfectly match what we see on the book but um I don't know. This is one of those places where I'm like, okay, maybe we could have like one nice person among the white cloaks. <laughs> like they're not all this terrible. Hopefully, probably, maybe they are in in TV land. We haven't met Jeffrem yet, right? Correct. 
I'll hold out hope for Jeff from having a, a spark of good. Um, yeah, well, and and again, back to this idea of the project of adaptation, it seems to me one way to understand the choices the writer's room made seems to be let's pick the most compelling character yeah. moments and let's show them in kind of rich, full relief with lots of good acting and scenes, which I think is smart in two regards. One, in the realities of TV land, it's just cheap, right? Like yeah. you put three characters in a plain white tent with a few props and you got the majority of, of this plot line. Um, and also it's just compelling because, yeah. you know, I think people who dislike fantasy, it's because of all the trappings of fantasy, right? Um, and they get distracted. They don't want a CG dragon or what have you. They just want a good story. And I think the focus here on a good character story is really helpful. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think for me, the the moment that kind of sells this is actually not a Perrin and Egwene moment. It's when Nynaeve is talking to Rand about Egwene, where mm. there's that that brief conversation where Nynaeve talks about when Egwene had breakbone fever and how Egwene refused to give up, and so she knows she's going to get through it. And then we immediately cut from that to, I, I think it's straight to Egwene channeling her way out of her bonds. And that story is one that I think appears in the first book as well. And I thought it was just expertly done here. That kind of like mm. exposition as character moment where it, you you get that like annoying thing that fantasy does where it needs to tell you about something 15 years ago. So you understand today, <laughs> but it's done about as well as you can possibly do it. And I think it just lands when you see how determined Egwene is in that following scene. Yeah. And couple that with, so we learn something about her past and then the character learns something about herself, right? Yep. Like this is a shift that, you know, I think as I understood the book, she kind of slowly discovered her ability to channel. Whereas mm -hmm. here she's told you have the ability yeah. um, and it becomes a weird self-fulfilling prophecy at that point in some weird way. Like she can, she can channel cause she's told she has the ability to yeah. channel then that. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting change there and what that does to her. I will leave it vague, but like it makes me think a lot about what she's going to go through in book two ish. Uh, who knows when on the show, but book two ish uh, time frames, and uh, how this this might layer her differently. And and this is back to your original transition into this plot line. This is an actress I had never seen before. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in my own kind of European fantasy you know, stereotyping. I pictured somebody a lot different than yeah. what uh, this actress looks like. And she's incredible and is owning the part and, you know, seems to be a real discovery in terms of, of acting. So excited to see her get even more juicy moments than this one to come. Yeah, apparently uh, she had done some work in Australia. She's from the Aboriginal mm -hmm. community, but she is just absolutely killing it um any last thoughts about this plot line i think it, it's really well done but as you say it's kind of like one scene that is then being chased down from the tinkers one really expertly done scene of kind of the interrogation and not a whole lot in between so was there any other moments or thoughts that you had before we get to what i think of as like 60 percent of these episodes the moraine and land plot <laughs> uh 
two bullet points. Bulletproof number one, bullet point number one uh, is uh, wolves equal awesome. Uh, so, you Correct. know, do I want to see like some wicked wolf action? I really do. But like just the hints of it. I mean, it's like the Jaws shark, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just give these tantalizing clues about what's going on. Uh, and that's really good. And point number two, um, I really liked that they had Egwene grab the rings, um, you yeah. know, which is totally new to this book, at least, or yeah. wasn't in book one. And so the idea she gets to have this heroic moment and then the kind of uh, transition uh, when she returns to the fold of Tarvalon and she can give those rings and it gives her a. Uh, a real moment where Moraine is touched. I, I yeah. you know, not overly emotional because it's Moraine, but clearly moved that Egwene made the effort to do right by her fallen sister. So I really enjoyed that they gave Egwene kind of a little hero moment in the mix yeah. of that. I, I mean, freeing them is a hero moment, but that was like mom with adrenaline lifts the car off the baby, whereas grabbing the rings is like, oh no, this is who I choose to be. Well, and I think if we're talking about situations in which, like, we have characters that are being kind of much more emotional than we expect. You said, like, Moraine kind of doesn't get overly emotional because that's not who she is. Boy, is this not the episode for Lan that I would have <laughs> ever anticipated, right? In the books, yeah. he is Mr. Made of Stone. And this is a at least episode five is just a really emotional Lan episode at its core. And... I think it's really well pulled off, right? But everything about it, Steppen is not a character who exists in the first book of the series. So mm. what did you think of this brand new plot line and what it did for a character who you've gotten a little bit of in the books, but he's never really been the focus like this? Yeah, I mean, we made a lot of hay about how I thought Lan had no emotion or interiority while well, we read that first book and uh, was proven wrong. Uh, again, leaving things a little vague for our non-readers. Um, but I found this really moving. Uh, you know, yeah. I think the theme of kind of brotherhood and compatriots is always moving to me. Um, it's something mm -hmm. that just kind of works. Uh, maybe, well, you know, I don't think you'd die for me, Tyler, but maybe no, I, I, I just... Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, my personal life, I didn't have strong male friends for most of my life. I, I was actually hanging out with, <laughs> I still don't have men who are strong as friends. I have a bunch of nerds, Correct. <laughs> but I also didn't have good friends who were men for a long time. So, um, you know, I think it's something that I've always kind of found compelling in that way. And we could pause here and unpack, uh, the Barbie movie, but we'll pause, we'll, we'll save that <laughs> for a, a bonus episode of a different sort. Um, so I think it always is a theme that speaks to me and and the character of Steppen was really moving, um, you know, to see yeah. a character going through this and, and um, you know, it's it's compelling because it's immediately relatable. And then you add the layers that the fantasy world provides that they had a deep emotional connection that he's kind of, you know, you're kind of lost if you lose your wife, best friend, partner, whatever. But you in this case it's like oh no he really literally has no place in this order it's, it's almost like being orphaned more than it is being you know um losing a wife yeah and i would add in kind of two notes on top of that right one is in the previous episode the warders describe the bond as the closest that any two people can be because for many of them it is their wife and it mm -hmm. is their partner and they can feel what the other person feels, right? And yeah. the second part of that, I think, is very, very important, right? Because when uh, uh, 
Nynaeve was healing Moraine in the third episode, Lan literally felt it, right? He was being, he was in pain from what was being done to her. That happens when the person dies. Mm. Like, this is real messed up in a way that only <laughs> fantasy books can mess you up. Like, I can't imagine feeling my wife die. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, that wasn't a curse explicit taggers. His wife's name is Jesus. Um, so, uh, yes. Um, and I want to give a shout out to, I always think the, the previously on editors never get enough credit for the kind of picking and choosing they do. But I think the previously on ended with the, like, you always get emotional when I drink line uh, oh, that's or awesome. something like that. And it, it just was a good little reminder. And then, the way this episode then returns to the funeral scene and uh-huh. it can leave that unspoken now because we've been reminded of and we understand and we understand that like Lan is experiencing this incredible pain and Moraine is feeling it. She's not yeah. empathizing with her friend the way you or I might, if we were capable of emotion with each other, uh, but is actually literally feeling it. And it's, it's powerful. And, you know, we're skipping all around the, I mean, as soon as, uh, you know, he was gone, I was like, this is it. And I actually thought he had jumped from the tower. So then the, the revelation of the, the, uh, suicide was brutal, but the, the funeral was just an all timer, uh, the, the chest beating and, you know, it's it's great when a fantasy show in particular can find a ritual that is not something we know, but feels so human and real. Yeah, um, it's very much I, Black Panther probably does that better than mm-hmm. any kind of modern fantasy sci fi thing where it's like, oh, we didn't understand the society, but now we know we should cross our arms and say Wakanda forever or what have you, yeah. you know, forever. So uh, really, really incredible television and just a, a beauty bit of acting. I I guess it's too late to hope that Land got nominated for an Emmy for this. That would that ship sailed. Yeah, I don't think that happened. Sadly, um, I think for me, and this may be a rewatch scene more than a first watch scene, but the one that jumps out to me is the sequence where Stepan comes to Nynaeve's room to ask him for the tea, which. At the time you see it the first time, you think he is asking for tea to help himself sleep. And then when you watch it the second time, you realize he's looking for something to drug land with. Um, But that sequence, the there's a moment in there. And I think you said this was the episode written by Celine Song. Is that right? Yep. Um, Yep. Yeah. There's a moment in that episode where or in that discussion where he says something like, um, I don't want it to stop hurting because then she'll be gone. And Nynaeve's mm-hmm. response is, don't worry, it'll never stop hurting. And the fact that that was an encouraging line is just wonderful writing. Yeah, yeah, that that is a, a beauty. And again, why I'm so high on Celine Song is my front runner for Best Picture of the Year is her film Past Lives, which is still eking it out in art houses around at least our city. So uh, people should check that on uh, at their local theater or if it's out uh, on digital, perhaps by the time you're you're listening to this. Well worth a rent. It's just incredibly well written. I have not seen it yet, but I can't believe Barbie is not your number one. Oh, my God. I love that movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to stick with that, although I will very much enjoy the Barbie Oscar race if the Oscars happen. Sorry to again make you worried about your class Um, (laughs) as we. uh, Yeah. 
it's it's again, I mean, I, I really don't want to bang this strike drum so long, but there's this prevailing wisdom that like, oh, the streamers are fine because they have such a deep bank of content. People won't stop, you know, listening forever. But Barbie and, you know, celebrating past lives and this show, it's like, yeah, writing matters, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that's going to be AI driven. Um, Yes, the crappy press releases that nobody actually reads, they just copy one sentence out of, will be AI in the near future. But you're not going to get quality AI entertainment for a long time to come. Uh, In case the AI is listening, I support you and your goals. uh, And please don't come after me. But I also just think you got to pay writers and you got to pay creative people. And it, it's wonderful to see it kind of on full supply uh, display here. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, if we're kind of transitioning from episode five, which is all about land and grief and just exceptional sequences all around episode six is, I think the best like single kind of justification I can have for why writing is so important, right? Mm-hmm. It is taking a character who exists in the book and who gets like a couple of sketches across three different books that are maybe two or three chapters each and weaving something brand new that takes Moraine and Siwan and puts them together in an interesting and just lovely way that has been headcanon for me for 20 years and is now on mm-hmm. the screen, Greg. When we learn that Moraine and Suan are a couple on the television show, you do not know how loud I yelled when I first saw that. <laughs> you cannot imagine. Uh, it it was really nice, and it, it had the effect on me where, I mean, I obviously knew the turn was coming where they were working together. So I kind of read that opening conflict. I'm like, y'all just playing. And then I... Got to the next scene, I was like, oh, y'all just foreplaying. Uh, <laughs> excuse the dumb joke, but it was uh, it was exciting to see that that, you know, you could lean more into that. And, um, you know, I think I think that is a difference between 1990s books and yeah. 2023. Te- tw- sorry, 2022 television where like, yeah, let's have some queer people because they're a part of this world and they deserve to be part of our storytelling. And it was really exciting and and really fun as well for me. I just need to be really, really clear. If you are going to set a story in an educational institution in which dozens and dozens of teenage women are left to their own (laughs) devices, there better be some queer people somewhere in that institution. (laughs) That's just how the world operates. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, fill in whichever college you you went to school near. But we all know like that's just the world of those institutions. So so well said. Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, you know, I also just want to celebrate the um, economical feels gross. No, no insult intended, but the economical writing of like. Let's do the backstory uh, and let's just give her a very notable tattoo. That means yeah. we can connect this. And, and it's like, you know, the number of times I go to a movie because I see really almost everything. And that means a lot of bad things. And it's like her first line would be like, I remember when my dad talked to me by the river when I was but a yeah. girl. And it's like, let's not do that. Let's not waste our time. Let's not bang us over the head. Let's just give you a visual cue. And I, I just thought that was so clever. Uh, we're bypassing just my shock that, you know, we got all this material, which I just yeah. learned as a book reader and was very <laughs> like, wow, like, oh, okay, we're doing this here. But um, uh, I'm going to say that Suan, uh, I still, in my notes, I always just say AMS, uh, the Amarillan seat. I did not 
find her particularly compelling so far in our other half of this podcast, but I was really taken by this episode and I'm much more interested in the character now based on what we see here. Well, and I think this is something that television can do really effectively, right? Is I think that like a little vignette, like the one that we get at the beginning of episode six with young Suan on the river, she uses the power and then her house gets burned down because they hate channelers down in tier. Like that I think is the kind of thing that would be, especially in the wheel of time where characters are mostly operating in the now. And so this would have to be a narrated story that could be 10 pages and instead you can do it in the first two minutes of an episode and it just works really beautifully as like a self-contained little story that I think is what television adaptation lets you do right is you don't have a 20 page description about tear in the way that it thinks about channelers you just show them run a little girl out of her town and that's enough and so this is I think where a lot of book readers have gotten lost I think in this show is that you can either see the show as simplifying the world, or you can see it as trying to condense the world into little moments that almost make you internalize it. And I really appreciate that about the show. Whereas I think a lot of book readers see it and are like, well, why aren't you telling me all these things about the world that make it really great in the books? And I'm like, no, show it and let us figure it out. Uh, you know, I, I'm not here to compliment you, but but very well said. And I think you're right that the people who love fantasy, like, you know, started buying fantasy in the 80s and that's been their life. That's all they read. It's mm -hmm. because they love world building of the nature you're talking about. And, yeah. you know, I, I think we're both that same way in, in our beloved franchises where it's like, I'm going to memorize every alien in the Star Wars cantina and I'm going to tell you how they ended up there and where they went after and it's nonsense and it doesn't make any sense, yep. but like some of us just love to do that, to catalog things in our head. And um, <laughs> I ended up in a long line with a whole bunch of nerds uh, this past weekend, which we won't get into, but it was like, people were trying to outdo each other. And it's like, well, did you know, blah, 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 blah. Did you know? And it's like, guys, we've all been reading the same web pages for the last five years. We all know all these things. Yep. Um, and so I think you're right. And I, I remember it particularly because I don't read fantasy as we've established. Uh, I remember it particularly around the Lord of the Rings movies. There were a yep. lot of Lord of the Rings fans who were like, Tom Bombadil's not here. I'm out. And like, you know, I get it. Like maybe the scout the scoring of the Shire is your favorite part of Return of the King. And maybe you think you really need it. But like you can't do it every detail all the way down. And so I think you have to make some choices. And and so all this is just to say, I agree with what you said and let's give us a little taste. I come from the camp that what we see on screen doesn't negate the world you love, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's like, yeah, it's all there. And if anything, I think somebody who loves the show would be compelled to be like, well, let's see what else there is. Yeah. And I have always been like, yes, then let's all celebrate the thing I love and we'll all learn those weird details that got cut out later. Uh, one of the random weird details in this episode of the show that I think is worth noting while we are talking about random weird details, uh, there is a character whose only line is telling Moraine where in the building Matt is. And that character is credited as Basil Gill, a not minor character who runs an ill in Cam in, in Camelin. And when I saw that, I was like, wait, what? Uh, okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So either that character isn't going to show up later or they'll be renamed. We'll find out then. Uh, but I, for me, this episode 
lives in that very brief dream ish sequence right moraine goes through a hole in the wall and we learn a whole lot about what's been going on behind the scenes for the previous five episodes so i think we'd be remiss if we didn't just spend a big moment talking about like we knew a little bit of the reveal but for the broader audience this is a big reveal that happens in in a very brief period of time right moraine we learn what she knows we learn that she's working with the merlin that no one else knows it that they've been doing it for 20 years just a big oh, old oh yeah they have oh uh, go on <laughs> i was done you go on <laughs> uh Yes, and I think you're right to note that for us, the impact was lessened. I mean, not uh, you said it exactly right. We don't know all these details, but um, it's lessened for us. Uh, it's just like, yep, got it. But I can't imagine if you're somebody, well, and our guest who ditched us uh, to go on a date uh, would have probably been somebody who hasn't read the books and would say like this was a major revelation. Um, he kept referring to the one he loves. Was this that episode? Is it this one he loved? I, I think he actually loved the one before it. He has oh, okay. been really taken by Lan. And so I think especially that funeral scene, which is just so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So I, I imagine if, if, if he or a more deserving guest were here, uh, I'm so brave because I know he's not going to listen, <laughs> uh, is uh, I think if they were here, they would say like, yeah, this is a huge revelation and it's really powerful. Whereas we're just kind of celebrating the differences from the book. Um, it makes me think, again, playing a little bit of the streaming game, we always kind of expected the ninth episode of Game of Thrones to be awesome. And so I'm kind of expecting episode seven to take that place here we'll see because i also remember the structure of the book um yeah. but um i'm thinking that these are kind of the character beats you need to have before you get into the kind of big action and then you have the fallout uh the denouement uh to practice my bad french um so i think it's really good and it also is very well written just that you can pack uh -huh. so much into there as a part of it I think it's really nice that we, it's in a difference from the book, that we end up in on the conspiracy before the other characters do. That we yeah. end up understanding what's going on a lot better than Rand, Matt, Perrin, and Egwene, and Nynaeve, and mm -hmm. I mean, literally everybody else. But uh, I think that has a nice effect um, and draws me closer again to that relationship between Moraine and um the ams as i write it or suane as you said it at some point you texted me like suane was great i'm like wait who's suane what's he talking about <laughs> and then, then i remembered what was going on <laughs> i think that for me one of the you were kind of talking about like the big action that we expect at the end of the last two episodes of this series for me part of what made episode six so effective is that there isn't really a big climax to the episode and if there is, it's the moment where Moraine is swearing on the oath rod. And mm. it works really well, I think, for me, because, A, it makes me kind of really invested in the words that are being said, right? When the oath rod gets out and we learn that it can bind the exact words into someone's bones, when Moraine starts changing, I will obey the Merlin into I will obey Suan Sancha, that immediately mm. makes me go like, oh, what does that mean going forward? And then mm -hmm. I think simultaneously in that, you mentioned it, the writing is just gorgeous, right? It is Moraine accepting that she is being banished and can't come back to her lover 
in order to succeed in the thing that she and Suan have been working at for decades. And that kind of tension, I think, plays out really well. And then in my brain, I'm just constantly going like, okay, what's going to happen? What is going to be the result of the wording of this oath? You don't change the wording of something like that without it mattering, I feel like. Yeah, um, I I had that impulse as well listening to it, and uh, you know I, I don't really have much more insight from the the book reading we've done, but like I see pathways forward in which that would matter a lot, and mm-hmm. so that makes me wonder for both both threads of our multiverse where where this might be going and how that might pull into it. Um, so incredibly compelling scene i you know council chamber scenes get a bad rap but i thought yeah. both of them were phenomenal especially if you can I, I mean the only way i could experience it was knowing that it, they were essentially play acting in the first one mm-hmm. and doing it for the crowd nothing makes my blood boil more when the good character has to act like they are losing to the bad characters glee yeah. um and again fantastic performances you know i hated hated leandrin mm-hmm. i pronounced that right yep. um and yet that's the point right some people right. are like oh I, I remember this when mandalorian season one came out people are like oh i hate that toro calican he's so stupid and I'm, I'm like that's the point of the episode you're supposed to hate him yeah. and you know, you can't say you hate that actor for acting out the part where you're supposed to hate him. Like, that's yeah. just the point. Um, and I felt like that had some of it here. It's like, I really like hate her. And I mm-hmm. imagine she was having a delicious time playing that role. Um, but that means it was it was well done. And, you know, it, it's so stupid. But to me, that is often how you build like the best heroism in my mind is you yeah. show a character of principle acting on the principles and suffering at the hands of their enemy or at least to the enemy's glee. So all of that wrapped into both of those scenes was just delicious chef's kiss. And and I think this episode is just a masterclass in giving your character a bunch of conversations that honestly, we don't care that much about and then letting them touch on things that suddenly start to like become important by osmosis right Mm. moraine has like a meeting with alana and a meeting with the head of the blue aja and we could include her meeting with sawan in this to some degree and she has that meeting with leandrin and all of those are things where i'm just like okay moraine is being told again that she either needs to like stay in the city or leave the city or do Mm. none of it matters but the MacGuffin of figuring out what is moraine planning and what who's in on it and who's not i think that works well for me even if i'm kind of like to some degree i'm like okay tower politics tower politics tower politics Mm. let's get to the good stuff uh i've become a much bigger proponent of not allowing myself my cell phone in the room while i'm watching anything not just things for a Uh podcast but like i think that's exactly right like i would have had my phone out and started to like surf instagram in those moments because they feel forgettable or repetitious like you alluded to but um it's so important to like actually consume the art you want to consume and not split your attention between them and not let something uh break that up so um yeah i i think um you know I, I think all of it worked really well. And what will last with me is the shot of her standing on the balcony. Um, I don't think I really thought she was about to jump or anything just because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have made sense with all we know. But like the way in which that represents the love and the loss and the hope 
the yeah. reason to do everything, but the thing, you know, it's just, it's all wrapped up in kind of that great uh, visual of her standing there and um, really good. I did want to ask about one of the women she talks to is, um, is there a Sirum or something like that? There's a funny name. Oh, was she the blue that she met in yeah. the in the bathhouse? I think so. Which also sidebar, thanks for not going full Game of Thrones Wheel of Time. There were two scenes in this. I was like, Game of Thrones would have done these a lot differently. Yep. Uh, and I was glad we didn't go that way. Um I I think I need to not ask my question. So apologies for listeners having heard that. Uh I'm being sensitive of not crossing the streams of our two podcast uh halves at the moment. So I'll I'll save that back. But in the other version of our podcast, I did bring up the opening credits, which we haven't talked about uh mm-hmm. really much. And so I'll I'll use this moment to say I found it really fascinating in the context of these episodes in particular, how central the Aja appear to be in the opening credits, right? Yeah. So is the correct interpretation that we build a tapestry of the seven Aja around the wheel of time in the center? Is that what the credits essentially construct? I think so. Yeah, it's at least threads that are of the same colors of the seven Aja, and they kind of build images representing uh, the Aja. The The interesting thing, of course, is that anytime you do that imagery, and then of your options for colors, three of them are brown, white, and gray, you're going to kind of naturally focus on the other four. But mm. yes, I, we, we, we get a lot of red, yellow, green, blue, but I think that's the right interpretation. I find that so curious um, because at least as far as I understand this fantasy world, the central part of the story, I would have put the five in that position, right? Or representations of the five icons of the five. And so the fact that we kind of push all that aside and focus instead on the Aja is very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Also in light of the fact that there may or may not be an eighth Aja is, is curious as well. Um, you know, so I, you know, I alluded on our main show uh, to the fact that um, it kind of is easy to dismiss these credits as like they're doing the the uh, the the Westworld. Uh, you know, Game of yeah. Thrones has kind of an interesting map you kind of have to construct. To me, Westworld was doing very similar things where they were kind of building the androids from yeah. strands. Um, but I do really appreciate that it is a loom which we've talked Mm -hmm. about on our other podcast quite a few times and it matches the language around weaving and and the wheel is obviously centered but i am very interested in the fact that the show put the aja in the center and maybe you can't respond to that other than to say you made an observation good on you but i think that's really interesting you made an observation (laughs) <laughs> uh, good on you. Um, I do just think for people who are watching the show who have not followed the book, uh, just a reminder of the Ajas is is really, really helpful here because we've gotten mm. hints and mentions of them and you know, things here and there. But one thing the television show, I think, to its credit does is it doesn't spend too much time explaining what all seven colors are. Unless you watch the bonus content, they do actually have good explanations of all seven mm. Ajas. So I'm willing to give them to you here. Reds, hunt down channelers, in particular male channelers who are doing things that they should not be. There are blues uh, in the books. They are primarily people who are going after causes on the television show. Spy seems to be a little bit more of the way they're described. The green are the battle Aja. 
The yellow are healers, and it should be noted, um, Nynaeve started wearing a lot of yellow in this episode. Hmm. Uh, and then the other three that we get a lot less detail about in the show so far are the browns, the grays, and the whites. Generally speaking, those are the intellectuals, and we can break them down if we ever get a good description of them on the show. Fantastic and helpful. Uh, last thing I want to give the streaming service we're using credit for, I love when you pause and they give you the x-ray and they yep. say who the, why have the other streaming services not grabbed this? It is so easy and simple. Cause it's they patented it. Oh, so smart of them. Yeah. Now I will say they also now throw in a, like, Hey, you want to shop for, yep. for Wheel that's of Time also here? very smart of them, uh, which is very smart. And I understand the reason they create content is really just so I buy toilet paper from them. But I do love the pause when you're like, who's that actor? And instead of having to first Google Wheel of Time and yeah. then Google the character and then go, you can just be like, oh, that name. Do I know that name? And you can look it up. And I've used it far too often um, when watching oh, actually literally everything I've watched on Prime, this uh, League of Their Own, things like that. So, yeah. Uh, so I want to actually, unless you have any last thoughts about this particular plot line, I want to jump to the very end of the episode because you and I are both book readers, which means that we had the same reaction at the end of this episode, right? We open up the way gates, we prepare to go through, and then Matt doesn't go with them and we go, wait, what? And then the episode ends. Yeah, I... I found myself playing the game of are they messing with us with editing? Like, will he just like jump through at the last second next episode or is he really not going to go? Let me answer this question with a little bit of specific detail about what happened here. Episode yeah. six was being shot in March 2020. Oh, no. And episode okay. seven shot in about November of 2020. Wow. And in that time, the actor who played Matt didn't come back for reasons that are not apparent. He has been recast for season two. He was not available for episodes seven and eight. So they cut him out of the show. Wow. So it could be COVID protocols. I don't want to cast any accusations or anything. It, but it, it, Exactly. Right. This could very well have been family issues. It could have been something with COVID. It could have been visa issues in the immediate yeah. wake because they were shooting in Eastern Europe. Like there are all sorts of things. Uh, the show has been very clear. They're not going to talk about reasons. We don't need to speculate at all. But like if we're talking about, you know, major changes from COVID, we'll talk about a lot of those in the next uh, episode because we've got two episodes that were shot under COVID protocols when those weren't things. Yeah. But uh, it, at least initially, my response to this is like, oh, this is good info for uh, the audience to know. It's an interesting change that they're going to do real things with. It's not an awkward, he's gone, we'll never mention it again. But this is COVID striking is what happened here. And so just to clarify, you obviously know what's in seven and eight, but you have not seen their reasoning. Like if he shows up and is like, oh, I got a terrible scar. Here is my face now or saying you have no idea what the reasoning I got nothing to the show will be. Yeah. I mean, it seems probably more likely they'll just be like, hey, Matt, like <laughs> Matt, 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 and just say his name 10 times in the episode. So you we all recognize Uh fascinating and you know certainly makes me interested in talking more about the way next episode is shot with kind of that in mind um so and you know 
I do not have the knowledge at hand about what those countries were doing around COVID at a given time. But I, I, you know, a lot has been made this summer about these blockbusters with just huge budgets. And it's mm-hmm. like, nobody says like it's COVID, right? Half of mission impossible, half of Indiana Jones was shot under COVID. And yeah. they're like, how did Indiana Jones cost $300 million? It's like, cause suddenly they had to develop code of COVID protocols and pay somebody and like, you know, yeah. all of that stuff. So uh, interesting. And I'm interested to see how that impacts it. Um, it was great to see the gang back together. Um, yeah. And while I was shocked at that moment you alluded to, I actually kind of wondered if we were going to skip the way gate because, you know, again, we never had been to Tarvalon in this book, but yeah. it was like, oh, well, maybe we are just going to walk to the other city. So interesting. Also very interested in the stones that got a lot of camera love at the beginning of the first of these episodes, which I'm only remembering now, they weren't quite portal stones by oh, yeah. their exact appearance, but I were loved by the camera. I think in all of the plot lines or at least two or three of them. Yeah. I just love every little bit of like tiny world building through camera shots that we get. I don't recall the specific stones that you are describing, but yes, every time yeah. that they do that, it just works for me. And I actually just have to say the Waygates look absolutely nothing like they are described in the book. Good. I love the new Waygates. I think they make a lot more sense than the way that they were previously yeah. described. I, I think it worked. My my biggest complaint about the end of this episode is that if they send the horses away, that means that Bella, the wonder horse, who I love from the books, is mm. not going with them. And I don't know how I feel about this. And no cupcake. Um, yeah, well, and clearly they love the way the gates look because it was a lot of the key art for this season yeah. when you see the posters and what have you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, huge difference. Like, but I'm thinking of their description in the book, which is I, I don't think we have to be secretive yeah. about it, like a doorway in a basement. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that would have stunk. <laughs> like, that wouldn't have been <laughs> as grand or epic as what we got here. So, all right. I think we did justice to these and celebrated them uh, well. And I hope our listeners have found it compelling, even if it's just the same old two of us. Uh, we'll promise a guest for episode four in this season uh, and pray that we don't get ditched again. Uh, but the hope is to have a woman on to talk about this uh, show and uh, get a better perspective than just the two of us gave. So as I said at the top, if you're enjoying this uh, television insert, uh, insert series, please, please, please tell people, share this episode. If you are listening to this because you love the show and you haven't tried the books, let us be your companions through the first uh, at least three uh, novels so far. Uh, All our back catalog is always up and available in the podcatcher of your choice, um, and you can go back and take it at your own pace. Uh, I think we've heard from some of our devotees uh, that especially over the summer, they're like, yeah, I fell behind. That's cool. We we try to keep these timeless, and we want it to be, you know, not an audio book, obviously, but a companion piece for whenever people are reading this. So, uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you next television episode for episode seven and eight recaps and a little full series discussion. Uh, and in the meantime, if you're a producer in Hollywood, pay people. Please. Through the glass columns. <laughs> So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. 
This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.